2008, Bernie Madoff, the American stockbroker and money manager, gathers his sons together and he tells them that he plans to give out several millions of dollars in bonuses earlier than scheduled. For the Madoff family, Christmas was coming early. His sons are in shock and they demand to know where the money is coming from. And as Bernie shares about how he got this money, he says, it's one big lie. What began as $5,000 in cash from lifeguarding and installing sprinkler systems grew to become an investment empire. What on the outside looked like one of the most successful investment firms in the country with billions in assets ended up being the largest financial fraud ever in U.S. history and the largest Ponzi scheme in world history. The next day, his sons turned him in to the authorities, and by the next year, Bernie Madoff was convicted of 11 felony counts of fraud, money laundering, perjury, and theft. He was sentenced to 150 years in federal prison. When all was said and done, he had defrauded nearly 5,000 clients of $65 billion. Some of his victims were the likes of Steven Spielberg and Kevin Bacon, Larry King, and Fred Wilpon, who's the owner of the New York Mets baseball team. Everyone from big-time celebrities to big-time banks and hedge funds were affected. Some lost millions, others lost billions. When you hear the testimonies, though, of his victims, you can't help but feel for them. You can't help but feel for them and the sad effects that it had on their lives. One client describing the shock of it all said, I know it sounds crazy, but it's like when people come back from war. It was just so shocking and so deep and so out of the blue, unexpected. One woman describing the moment she found out said, it was disbelief, it was distrust. I mean, this man was highly recommended. And another said, I trusted him because he'd been managing my daughter's college funds since 1970. Many of Madoff's victims had to put their retirement off indefinitely. Some would never recover. To many, Madoff was a wildly successful financier who put off a front of respectability. He promised high returns but not outlandish returns, and who served as the chairman of NASDAQ for several years. On the surface, everything looked legit, everything. And yet underneath it all was deception. The problem was that many hoped and trusted his word to bring them great gain, but ultimately it brought them catastrophic loss. What many hoped would deliver and protect them from financial burden later in life brought them financial destruction. In our sermon passage this morning, we see a similar situation, except that the destruction of deceit wouldn't just be monetary. It wouldn't be a monetary consequence, but it would actually be eternal. It would have eternal consequences. 
which raises the question, what kind of word are you banking your hope upon this morning? What kind of word are you going to trust? And are you certain that it will bring you deliverance? Well, turn with me now to Psalm chapter 12. Psalm 12. As you're turning there, I'll just kind of get you acquainted with the Psalms if you're new to the Psalter. The Psalms were were a divinely inspired songbook for the public worship of God in Israel. They were one of the ways that God's people actually learned devotion to him. As it's been said, the Psalms help us to see God. God not as we wish or hope him to be, but as he actually reveals himself. And these songs weren't just only sung among God's people, but they were actually often used as prayers by early Christians, as we saw in our sermon series in the book of Colossians. The Psalms, they give us a wide range of emotional and social and spiritual responses to the circumstances of life. They actually help us see our circumstances against the backdrop of God's own character. Our psalm this morning is really, as you heard in Cole's prayer just a minute ago, it's a corporate lament. It's a corporate lament. And though it's written by David, David is speaking on behalf of the faithful few who are left among God's people, those who are the true people of God. Now, you may be unfamiliar with that term, lament, but biblically speaking, a lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust and praise. That's what a lament is. It's a prayer in pain that leads to trust and praise, as one pastor put it. And so to lament is to wrestle with the reality of God's sovereignty in a world of tragedy and pain. In Psalm 12, David, speaking on behalf of the godly, is lamenting that evil is being exalted among man. He's lamenting that. That deceit rather than devotion to the Lord is actually what characterizes God's people whom he called to be holy. And it's in that situation that this corporate lament rises up from David's heart. So let's read Psalm 12 together. To the choir master, according to the Shimoneth, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered. Because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness 
is exalted among the children of man. I think the main idea of this psalm is this. If you leave with one thing to write down, this would be it. The main idea of this psalm is that our hope of deliverance rests upon the certainty of God's word. I think that's the main idea. The hope of our deliverance, our hope of deliverance rests upon the certainty of God's word. And this psalm is really built around two competing words and their opposite outcomes. That's how it's structured. The words of the wicked versus the word of the Lord. And the question that's raised is, which word are you going to trust? Which word will you trust? Will it be, point number one, a word that's deceptive, as seen in verses one through four? Will it be a word that's deceptive or, point number two, a word that's trustworthy? A word that's trustworthy, as seen in verses five through eight. Point number one, a word that's deceptive. This psalm begins like a Christian horror film. It does. David is crying out to God to deliver his people. The first phrase of the psalm is, save, O Lord. But why is David calling on God to deliver him or to deliver his people? Look with me at verse one. David says that the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Not only that, if you notice the bookends of the psalm right here, even vileness is exalted among the children of man. So you can imagine David surrounded by people and all of a sudden he's the only one left in the room. How isolated and lonely he must have felt and those of the remnant of God's people must have felt. The temptation to join the in crowd was probably strong. After all, if you can't beat them, you might as well just join them anyway. And maybe many of his own friends were siding with evil, causing even greater pain within him. It calls to mind really the story of Elijah that would come later, if you remember from 1 Kings chapter 19, where Elijah retreats from the danger, retreats from danger, of his life out of fear that he's the only one left among God's people, right? You remember God goes to him at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. What are you doing here, Elijah? I'm the only one left. But then God tells Elijah that he's left 7,000 people in Israel who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah was mistaken. And maybe David was as well. It seems as if everyone had turned from the Lord. I'm sure that many of you in here right now have probably felt that way. You seek to do the right thing or to stand for truth. No one else sticks around. They all leave. It can feel like a lonely place to be. Yet as we see, David isn't alone. In verse 7, he tells us that the Lord will protect his people which means that there is still a people. There is still a people of God. This, after all, is a corporate lament. 
He is not the only one lamenting the situation. He just wrote about it. But what is this situation? What's the situation? Verse 2. He says that not just some, but notice the universal language right here. Everyone, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. Though this is a corporate lament of David, right? It's a corporate lament out of David's own heart and the godly few among Israel. But from David's perspective, it seems as if there aren't any godly men and women left, that David is the last man standing. These lies weren't confined to one person, but they were spreading around like a deadly virus. Enough to where it seems that David, before David, that everyone is uttering lies. And notice what form these lies actually take. He says that they speak with flattering lips and a double heart in verse two. That word for flattering right there is speaking about words that are smooth. Smooth words. Words like the forbidden woman of Proverbs chapter 2, 5, and 7. Words that sound nice to the ear, but they hide an ulterior motive. These flattering lips are spoken with a double heart, as if they have two different kinds of hearts. There are two hearts within them. They say one thing, and yet they mean another. They're kind words disguise their real motives. Their hearts are deceptive and their words are manipulative. Their words will promise everybody freedom and yet enslave them to their own selfish purposes. Not only are these people deceptive, but the root of the deception is pride. In verses three and four right there, David says their tongue makes great boasts saying, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? They use their tongue to make war on others to get what they want. These people use others for their own selfish ends. Their tongue is ultimately their strength, their success. It's their security. And no one can tell them what to do because their lips are at their command. They find their hope and their trust in their words. No one is their master because they believe themselves to be king and they rule by their words. They're like the description of sin in Genesis chapter four, verse seven, crouching at the door, seeking to master its prey. Their deceit is destructive. Friends, this is a horrific picture. This is horrific. It's a far cry from what God called his people to be. As we see in Leviticus 19, we see that God called them to be holy because he is holy, and part of living a holy life is not lying to one another. Clearly, they haven't done that. Actually, they have done that. Because God is the first speaker, creating everything out of nothing by his word, Language, words are his creation. And our words ultimately belong to him and are to be used to glorify him and reflect his character. However, for Israel, 
Instead of being a people set apart from the nations, founded upon the truth of God's law, they have become like the nations that live like they have no law. And yet what David is experiencing, this is not new. David is one man in a long line of people that have already come before him. These lies, they have their roots in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, the serpent comes to Eve and he distorts the truth of God's word and he lies about the consequences of rejecting that truth. He twists the truth to advance his own purposes. And he does so because he wants them to distrust God's authority, his goodness, and his trustworthiness. The serpent wants them to reject God so they will serve him and it will ultimately result in their destruction. At that moment in the garden, a war of words had begun. And this war is waged throughout the rest of scripture and is still going on today. The roots of deception aren't just seen in the beginning though. They're not just there in Genesis three, but it's no coincidence that they're also in the final book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 13. You may recall that pesky Revelation 13, the mark of the beast that we get all squirrely about, right? It's no coincidence that in Revelation 13, the second beast that arises in the final days is a false prophet who deceives God's people into false worship. His words are his power, and he gathers worshipers to swear allegiance to the serpent, to Satan. This false prophet may look like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. Lying and deceiving is not new. It's not new. It characterizes our own culture today. We see it in the mantra of our age as seen in expressive individualism. Maybe that, that phrase, that title is new for you. I would say get acquainted with it because it's all over the place. That we are the master of our fate. We are the captain of our soul. We hear this in phrases like, you speak your truth. Be true to yourself, you do you. As missiologist Mark Sayers describes the belief behind expressive individualism, he says it's the highest good. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. And the way that you come to a greater understanding of self is just by defining your own truth and identity. And if anything or anyone restricts one's individual freedom, then it's gotta be reshaped. It's gotta be deconstructed or reconstructed and then destroyed. For the expressive individualist society, the church saying that we need to die to being true to ourselves but true to our new self in Christ, that is outright heresy. And it's to be reconstructed or destroyed. And sadly, what's happening in this kind of society is that we've turned in on ourselves like an endless cul-de-sac within us of introspection, where we look inside ourselves, not only in order to finally serve others, but ultimately to express ourselves to get what we want. 
But did you notice verse 4? This is at the very heart of these liars in the question that they raise in verse 4. Who is master over us? They were speaking their truth and they were believing in a self-defined reality that's false in an absolute affront to God who is master of all. But here's the thing. It may seem like an us versus them kind of passage. But this doesn't just characterize our own culture. It can also characterize the church. We don't just live in a society that lies, but we also lie to ourselves and to one, and to one another. This war is first a war within us before it is a war with others. We're told in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things. It deceives us by getting us to buy into the lies of Satan, who is our adversary, who, as Jesus says in John 8, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are deceitful because we're sinful. We're easily deceived by the deceiver. In Matthew 15, Jesus says to his disciples that what comes out of the mouth actually proceeds from the heart. That what comes out of the mouth that proceeds from the heart is what defiles a person. For out of the heart, evil thoughts come, murder comes, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander, all coming out of the heart where the mouth begins to speak. Brothers and sisters, the problem with our words has nothing to do with our skill in speaking, but everything to do with our own hearts. We're all liars at heart. And the reason that we speak lies is because at bottom, we're trying to get what we want. Our lies have a purpose. They have an agenda. They're trying to accomplish something at the expense of others. That's the whole point of being double-hearted in verse 2. It's deceptive. It says one thing, yet means another. And we find the motive for it in verse 4. It's to use our words to prevail over others to get what we want. And we do this. Where do we see this? We do this when we flatter someone for their work with the purpose of gaining their respect and favor so that we can rise maybe within a company. Respect and favor may not seem like bad things, but it can, be, it can be whenever we give false praise to gain favor so that we can advance in life. Or when someone disagrees with the direction within the church or doesn't prefer a specific leader, and so they begin to slander them by spreading false narratives about his or her character to get others to join their side against this leader. They're trying to dismantle any trust that any, other, any others within the congregation have in them. How about gossip? Shading the truth that you've heard about someone in order to paint a disfavorable picture of them in a more favorable picture of yourself. Wanting others to look small and us big. We see this in the church all the time. 
And ultimately, we're buying into a different interpretation of life. We're buying into a different interpretation of life that's not consistent with God's word nor his character. One in which we're the king in pursuit of building our own kingdom. And yet in reality, our words actually reveal what we worship. Deceitful words find their hope and their trust in themselves. Though we think that we're our own master, like those in verse four, sadly the consequences of false speech are devastating and destructive. Consider the consequences of, small, of, of false speech on others. Proverbs 26, 28 says, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. False speech is a form of hatred toward others. That's what it is. Look at David and the faithful remnant in Israel. They're in pain. They're hurting. Verse five says that the poor are plundered. The needy are groaning. Not only that, but false speech has the power to overthrow a whole culture within a church. After all, David says that everyone is lying to their neighbor. Everybody's buying into it. It can divide churches into factions opposed to one another and disintegrate any trust within the congregation and its leaders. And sadly, those who are deceived by these lies or they're going to experience the same consequence as those who deceive them. Which is why the New Testament authors are so bent and spend so much time on addressing false teaching in the churches because it will bring eternal destruction for those who buy into it. That's why Paul gets so worked up in Galatians chapter one. He doesn't want them to desert the gospel. Not only is their deceit destructive toward others, but also themselves. Consider the consequences of deceit for yourself. In James chapter three, as we just heard in our scripture reading a moment ago, we learn that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison and a world of unrighteousness, staining the whole body and setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Lying is self-defeating because you're engulfed by the flames that you spread. When in reality you can't tame your tongue, then you're actually not your own master. <laughs> you think it brings freedom, but instead you become a slave of corruption, as Peter says in 2 Peter 2.19. And in verse 4, David calls on God. I mean, what an image in verse 4. He calls on God to cut off their lips, to cut off flattering lips, which is just another way of saying, silence them, do away with them. David is not being harsh right here. He's not being harsh. He rightly understands God's character and he's asking God to act according to his character, to be just in dealing with the wicked because he is a just God. And verse five, God responds and he says, I will now arise. God is going to arise from his heavenly throne and he is going to execute judgment. The final word for lying lips is judgment. 
Friends, if we look for salvation in deception, we will reap destruction. You can bank on that. Talk is not cheap. No matter what anybody says, it's not cheap. And it might just cost you your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've bought in to that mantra of being true to yourself. That we can define what's true for us. But friend, do you see the heart behind those who are wicked in Psalm 12? They were speaking their truth. That's what they were doing. But they were deceived. And that truth resulted in destruction. When you, when you trust in what's false, it will prove to be fatal for you. But if you abide in Christ's word, you will know the truth and that truth will set you free. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And only those who repent of their sin and trust in him who died and rose to conquer sin in their place can be set free from slavery to sin to eternal life. Turn from seeking truth within yourself and trust in the one outside yourself who is the truth to deliver you from your sins. So what word are you trusting in this morning? What word do you trust in to deliver you on that final day? Ultimately, David isn't questioning God's sovereign reign over his circumstances. He's not. Instead, he's leaning into it by calling on God to save. And the Lord responds with another word, verses five through eight, a word that's trustworthy. Point number two. The first half of the psalm began with David asking. Second half of the psalm begins with God answering. With God answering. God speaks and he promises his people that he will deliver them. As we've seen, the liars of verses one through four show no concern for the poor and needy, but they actually use them for their selfish purposes. However, God shows concern for them by giving them his word of promise to arise in judgment against their oppressors and to deliver them. Look at verse five again. He says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. But do you trust that? How can you know that it's trustworthy? Is it certain? How is it not just like the empty words of the liars in verses one through four? How can you know that? Verse six. David expresses his confidence in God's promise. He says this, incredible verse, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. David is, he is proving the purity of God's word with a picture of silver being refined from all of its impurities. The number seven right there is a number of completion. It's a number of perfection. For a precious metal to be purified seven times speaks to how completely how perfectly the metal has been purified from all of its impurities. David uses this picture to say that God's word is pure. It's as perfect, it's as perfect as it gets. It's as pure as it gets. There is no mixture of impurity or error or lies or deceit. No matter what test comes against it, God's word 
his promise, his always proven true over and over and over again. As one 19th century English Baptist put it, the Bible has passed through the furnace of persecution, literary criticism, philosophic doubt, and scientific discovery, and has lost nothing but those human interpretations which cling to it as alloy on precious ore. The experience of the saints has tried it in every conceivable manner, but not a single doctrine or promise has been consumed in the excessive, in the most excessive heat. Contrary to the deceptive flattery of the liars in verses one through four, who speak with a double heart, not saying what they mean, God's word is pure, it's perfect, it's trustworthy because God himself is pure, perfect, and trustworthy. God is not a man that he should lie. He is a God of truth. His word actually reveals his character. And you can trust his word because he's a trustworthy God. As Paul says in Romans 3, 4, let God be true though everyone is a liar. Human words, they can have an effect on us. Human words can affect us. They can have an effect on people by hurting them or helping them. However, God's word is effective. It is effective. It creates what it commands. It proves what it promises. And so God's word really does define reality for us. We can try and define reality on our own, but we be living a lie. His word actually creates the reality his words are everything that we want our words to be, and they are not. Which is why it's foolish to trust in our own lies, to trust in the lies of others. And so when he says that he will deliver through judgment, he will do so. It's as good as done. He always says what he means, and he does what he says. He will have the final word. Which is why choosing the way of deception is rejecting the way of the Lord for aligning yourself with the father of lies. We reflect God's character by being a people who know and actually speak the truth, which is foundational for our community. And this trustworthy God reveals his character in his very heart and his concern for his covenant people in verse five. He says that it's because the poor are plundered and the needy groan that he will arise, really calling to mind God's own people in Exodus, crying out to God to deliver them, groaning to him to save them. God cares about executing justice against the wicked and protecting the most vulnerable because he is a just and merciful God. The poor and needy in these verses have been taken advantage of by these deceivers. They are physically destitute. And now God, right here, he's not speaking about the poor and needy out there, that is among the pagan nations. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking about the poor and needy in here among his covenant people who are being exploited. And as God's people who seek to reflect God's character, we ought to have a concern for what God is concerned about. We ought to be concerned for what God is concerned about. Now understand, America is not a theocracy. 
It's not a theocracy. This text isn't calling us to physically provide for every poor and needy person in the world. Right? It's not calling us to do that. Not to provide for everybody. But instead, right here in these verses, the Lord is calling for us who have an obligation to those that we have covenanted with and committed to, to show a care and a concern for those who are poor and needy due to circumstances outside of themselves. It's those in the covenant community, right? Those on this side of the cross that are a part of the local church. But here's the question I think that we need to ask of ourselves in this verse. Do you know those within the body who are poor and needy due to circumstances outside themselves? Do you know them? God does. He knows them. He has a concern for them. And so should we. Because it reflects his just and merciful character. Would you feel comfortable having them into your home? Would you feel comfortable going into theirs? Now in response to this, you could say, well, I'll just give more money to the benevolence fund. Okay, that's not a bad thing. But even better, taking action on your own to get a group of people together from UBC to provide resources and hands-on assistance where it's needed. You're seeking to carry out and try to carry each other's burdens and sorrows in a tangible way. And if you need help, you can always just talk to the elders about that and how to help them. Brothers and sisters, this is just one part of what it looks like whenever Jesus says in John 13, 35, that all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is just one part of that love that we're to have for one another in here. Our love for one another serves as a witness to the world of God's love and concern for his people. It should cause the world to stand up and say, what's going on in there? Their God is an incredible God. He legitimately has a concern for the poor and needy. However, the physical poor and needy, they actually serve as a type, a foreshadow of an even greater spiritual reality that we all find ourselves in. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. I will admit, I absolutely failed because we didn't end with this song this morning. It's one of those things where you look back and you're like, wow, drop the ball on that one. What a glorious hymn by Fernando Ortega. Wonderful hymn. We are all spiritually poor and needy sinners in need of a savior and praise God. Praise God because he has placed us in the safety for which we long. His son, the word made flesh, who was full of grace and truth. And the father has secured our safety through his sacrifice in our place. He is the perfect one who committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges 
justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Brothers and sisters, we don't revile in return when others speak lies against us because our hope and our trust is founded on better promises. It's founded upon the word of God made flesh. That's who it's founded upon. God has called us to his son. He has adopted us into his family and we ought to reflect his own character and be founded upon the truth of his word. A truth-shaped community reminds us that God's word is trustworthy whenever you are tempted to buy in to the lies of the world. And that's why the church, that's why the church is a mechanism used by God to actually promote and then to protect the gospel and serve as a plausibility structure for faith. It's a plausibility structure for faith. It makes it, it puts hands and feet to that faith. David might have looked forward to the day that this deliverance would come, would come and he cries out for it, right? The day that he would cry out for would finally be realized or actually it wouldn't be realized. But for us, it is. We look back at it because for us, God has placed us in the safety for which we have longed. He has placed us in his son, in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're gonna celebrate in just a moment whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Our future is secured. We live in light of the cross, looking back at it. Not only has God placed us in a safe place, but he will keep us. He will guard us, as you see there in verse seven, like a parent keeping an eye on their child when they need help or keeping an eye out for their child by being aware of any danger that may come toward them. God preserves and he protects us because our life is hidden with Christ in him and no one can snatch them out of his own hand. But what happens? What happens whenever you cry out to God to deliver you, but your circumstances remain unchanged? What happens? Where the wicked actually just prowl around like lions looking for somebody to devour. Where vileness is exalted among man. What do you do? For David, he doesn't retreat, but relies on God. Though his situation remains unchanged, his soul doesn't. His soul is lifted from the turmoil of deceit to trust in his deliverer because he has the unbreakable promise of God's word. We don't just trust God if he fixes our situation. No, we trust him when the problem isn't fixed by fixing our eyes upon his promise to deliver. We too are looking forward to another day of salvation. We're looking forward to that day when Christ will return to reverse the curse and to deliver us from its destruction, where we will realize in full the safety which we always longed for. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word 
and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Brothers and sisters, our hope of deliverance rests on the certainty of God's word. So what kind of word are you banking on? What are you placing your hope in? What are you trusting in this morning? Let's pray. Great God, we praise you that you have shown mercy to us in Christ. Lord, you have placed us in the the safe, in the secure place for which we long. And we praise you for that. That it is safe because it is ultimately in your son who is indestructible. Lord, we pray that we would cling to your promises that when all the chatter, when all the voices are going on throughout the week trying to get us to buy into lies, Lord, that we would ground our heart in the truth of your word and we would rest in it, that we would hope, we would long for the day when Christ will return to gather us home. Lord, please hold us fast. You are our mighty fortress. Hold us fast till the end, we pray in Jesus' name.